The following study is a Sunday morning meeting at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship with Pastor Brett Metter. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the Song of Solomon. We'll, uh, Lord willing, be wrapping up this little book uh, this week, uh, this Wednesday. We'll, Lord willing, finish it up. Um, and I'd like to draw your attention to Song of Solomon, chapter 5, for this morning's study. Hey, uh, uh, you know, did you do good on Valentine's Day, guys? Mission accomplished? Uh, yeah, I see some. I see some affirmatives. That's good. That's good. Um, you know, Valentine's Day is is an interesting time, and um, one thing I've noticed is um, the part of the struggle is knowing what to get for your spouse, and it's one of those things that men struggle with because we don't think the same way women do, you know, and, and women don't think the same way men do. I know that's politically incorrect, but that's never stopped me before. Um, uh, you know, modern psychology says, really, there's no difference between men and w- women, you know, nature versus nurture, and, and really, we're just programmed to be men and programmed to be women. Well, I, I think we were programmed by God to be different. Now, I know I'm painting with the broad brushstroke, but one of the things that's interesting about men and women is we really are quite different. And it's so funny to me that they've tried to convince us that there really are no differences. And, and um, you have parents now uh, seeking to raise their children uh, sort of in a neutral fashion. We'll see what they turn out to be instead of this influence and stuff. I guarantee the little boy, as soon as he's old enough to pick up a stick, he's going to turn it into a gun. That's just what boys do. It's built in. This, this uh, warrior, uh, soldier, uh, fight kind of, uh, that's sort of built into guys more, I think, than it is girls. You, you could, if you don't believe me, just have children. <laughs> that's all you got to do. Uh, all these so-called studies and stuff. One of the studies that I found was interesting was done, uh, um, there was a book and an author that wrote about this that I thought was interesting. Um, In his book, His Needs, uh, Her Needs, Dr. William Harley talked about a study that was done, and they basically were asking men and women what they were looking for in a marital relationship. And uh, they're quite different, actually. Um, And he lists the top five things that uh, each uh, really desire in marriage. And I thought it interesting. The men, what men are looking for in a marriage relationship, number one out of five, um, sexual fulfillment. Yep, write that down. (laughs) You guys are like, yeah, we don't have to write that down. Uh, uh, Yeah, sexual fulfillment, that's number one uh, on the man's list, according to this study. Um, Number two, recreational companionship. What in the world is that? Well, basically, someone to fish with, uh, someone to watch the game with, somebody to ride dirt bikes with. Uh, uh, that's what men are looking for in a marital relationship. Recreational companionship. So sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship. Now, number three is interesting, an attractive spouse. In other words, he wants you to uh, look like you just dumped out of a Victoria's Secret catalog, also be able to bait the hook while you're fishing, and do this all at the same time with a sexy sort of flow of fishing and fashion. Uh, that's number three. Number four, this one really cracks me up, domestic support. Nice way of saying maid. Um, (laughs) Washing the clothes, uh, doing the dishes. Did you know millennials, you know, they're so much more egalitarian, more more open-minded to men and women relationship and works and and but what did you guys see the study just two days ago that came out in the news? Just two days ago, millennials, while they have these more open-minded male-female relationships, as it turns out, 
The women are doing just as many dishes, changes just as many diapers as they were in my generation and previous generations. Like we're, we're acting like we're all oh, so open-minded and everybody's, you know, we're all the same. But as it turns out, the women are still doing all the hard work in the home. Um, but that's, according to this study, that's one thing a guy really uh, appreciates in marriage is, is domestic support. Um, fifthly, admiration and praise. A man does value being admired. Oh, you're so strong. You're so handsome. You know, men still appreciate that as it turns out. And it's funny because the Bible actually talks about that one. Um, You know, in the Bible, it says that, you know, men and women are to, you know, do two specific things. Men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to respect or reverence their husband is the word there. And it's, those are two very different things. Um, but love and respect, men and women, it's, it's, those are the big ones in the Bible, by the way. So you got the first five of the men. The women's list is very different. Uh, according to this study, what women are looking for in a marriage relationship, number one, affection. Now, for you guys that are a little thicker, that's not sex. Uh, they're, they're different things. Number one on the guys was sexual fulfillment. The number one on the girls was, uh, was affection. Um, and that, that's something that you, you and I have to learn as men uh, what that looks like, and it's important. Um, number two, support in conversation. Conversational support? What does that mean? Um, it means she wants to talk with you, uh, have equal communication. How was your day? And you actually tell her something more than it was fine. Um, you actually tell her about your day, that she wants uh, support in conversation, two-way conversation. Number three, honest and open communication. Uh, Pastor Brett, isn't that the same thing as number two? Uh, you know, support and conversation. Number three is open and honest communication. Yeah, it it sounds the same as number two, but she wants it so bad it's twice on her list. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Just, just think of that, that, that way, guys. Uh, (laughs) uh, Sorry. Um, Number four, support financially. Uh, isn't that interesting that, that women still, according to the study, would say that a financial support, some of you guys are like, you mean shopping? Uh, maybe, uh, but, uh, but maybe not. Maybe more just a, a security uh, as it relates to being financially st- uh, stable is what a woman will look for. And then number five on the list of the study, someone who will maintain family commitment. Uh, a commitment level where uh, there's a, a stability in, in the family and, and in the home. And boy, how our culture needs that desperately as so many kids are being raised in single parent homes today. Um, and, and that's what women, the, according to this study, the women were longing for. Those two lists, man, very different. Now, what I've found in all the years of doing weddings and marriage counseling and premarital counseling, I've found that these two lists actually can uh, really divide. And it causes trouble in marriage. People uh, don't get along sometimes because his needs are different than her needs. Her needs are different than his. And so we, instead of completing one another, we find ourselves competing with one another. And, and really, instead of being di- di- dividing, uh, you know, these differences being, di- you know, divide, they should actually be divine. God made us different. And we're meant to be complements one of the other. And the man's strengths complement the woman's weakness. And the woman's, weak, uh, the, the, the woman's strength complements the man's weakness. And together, the two shall become one flesh. And there you have an interesting picture. If you have a healthy, really great marriage, 
I think you're probably looking at an illustration of, of just a little bit closer of who God really is. When God created man, he said, let us make man in our image. The, the plural there, I believe, is the God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All, all of them were there at the creation. Um, and so he said, let us, even though we, we believe in a, 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 a monotheistic kind of religion, we believe that God is one. Well, then why did you say three? Because there's three in one. I believe that in the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. And I believe that God expresses himself and is a, a being that is far superior to anything we can imagine. But in his uh, uh, greatness, he says, uh, we're going to create man in our image. And so we see the attributes of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in humanity. In fact, we can even talk about the unholy trinity, the part of you that's your body, your soul, and your spirit that the Bible talks about, how you're made up into kind of three parts. I say unholy because we're sinners. We're not perfect. But we are sort of a triune being, and so in, in, according to the Bible, in, in a, a similar way. But if you want to see God and who he is, you know, he, he sort of tells us that man was created in God's image. And, and so if you just look at the man, like God looked at Adam there in the garden and said, it is not good that man should dwell alone. So he fashioned the woman, Eve, and then she was the final puzzle piece fitting together to make a complete being. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go with, uh, there's a lot of people today that will say, God is a mother God of a goddess of the heavens and earth. And, you know, New Age likes to feminize God. God's not in the feminine, never in the Bible. You don't see God as being talked about as a girl. And there's a lot of people that really wish he was a girl, but he's not. You can wish, uh, you can hope, but you can be wrong. Uh, God is the father in heaven and he's in the masculine. However, and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I believe God in his masculinity, he's the perfect being. Everything that's lacking in us men on this earth, um, we see that sort of complement to the lacking man in the woman. And I believe those same characteristics of the woman can be found in God. Uh, God's the complete picture. So what do you mean, Brett? Well, clumsily put, um, some of us men tend to be very logical. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a lot of compassion, but we have logic and we like to state the facts and you know, fix things and we're da 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 and all. Well, the woman, she's got a sensitivity and a compassion. Um, and um, those two things can actually be strengths or weaknesses, but together you, you provide logic with compassion. Oh, that's a great combo. Um, and that's what we see in God. God's got total compassion, but he's the most logical being that ever walked the earth. He's got sensitivities, and he, and he has a heart of, uh, uh, like even a, a nurturing mother, like the Bible makes that uh, an analogy about God. It's not feminizing God. It's just saying the best attributes of the woman, we see that in God as well. Best attributes of the man, it's all there. Okay, Brett, what's your point? Well, here's the point. In the Song of Solomon... This amazing love story. Uh, it's an opera, really. Uh, there's four ways to look at this, and we've looked at this on studies uh, previous, but just a quick reminder. There's four ways that people read the Song of Solomon that are, you know, into the Bible. If, if you're one of those people, yeah, 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 I read the Bible, you'll just see a little bit of a love story that's kind of hard to follow. And that's the way people read the Bible a lot. Yeah, I read the Bible. It's kind of boring, a bunch of old stories. But you're not looking at it through the proper perspective. The Bible is multi-layered, and yes, it is a love story, and if you kind of do the work, it's a beautiful love story. 
Um, And it's kind of in an opera form. That's why it's called the Song of Solomon. The second tier is, it's this beautiful allegory of the love that God has for his people, the Jews. Um, The Jewish people and the rabbis, they teach this as an allegory of God's love for his wife. Israel in the Old Testament is called the wife of God. And it's an an illustration of God's love for his people, the Jews. Uh, And and all you have to do is read the book of Hosea, um, where this beautiful love story that's kind of um, heartbreaking because the wife prostitutes herself over and over again. And Hosea, the prophet, takes her back over and over again, even though she goes out and sells her body. And, uh, and he takes her back over and over. Eventually, she's old and haggardly, and she's standing no longer attractive, no longer wanted by men. And so she's standing on the slave auction stage in the middle of town, going to be sold as an old slave. And Hosea comes and purchases her uh, and takes her back in um, as his wife, even though she over and over again betrayed him. And, and that was an illustration of God's love for his people. Um, by the way, those that say God's done with the Jews and uh, he's forsaken them, you, you haven't really done your homework. God never has forsaken the Jews. Even though they have worshiped other gods and did idolatrous things that God compares to uh, prostitution. That's what God says. My, my people have you know, prostituted themselves with Baal and all that. God still loves the Jews and he's gonna have a perfect plan for them. And even as he uh, purchased, Hosea purchased her, the Lord, through Jesus Christ, purchased the Jews, just like also he purchased us. You see, that brings me to my third tier. You got the opera story in the Song of Solomon. You got the allegory of God's love for his wife, the Jews, if you would. But in the New Testament, you and I, the church, we didn't replace Israel. That's still intact, God's relationship with Israel. But the, the church in the New Testament is referred to as the bride of Christ. Um, that we get to be as the church, the bride of Christ. And so the third tier of understanding of the Song of Solomon, this romantic love story, is a, an allegory of, of, of Jesus's perfect love for his bride, the church. And we're going to look at that mostly today in that lens. There is a fourth tier that we look at uh, Song of Solomon, and that is a manual for marriage. Uh, The way we're supposed to love each other unconditionally, uh, sacrificially, as Jesus loves us. And we see that modeled right here uh, in our text of Song of Solomon. Now, I got to admit, I'm out of my, uh, out of my, off my lane when I'm talking about all this romance and squishy, gushy, mushy stuff. Uh, we should have probably had somebody like be a guest speaker here. I'm just going to say it right here. I'm not good at all this stuff, but I'm going to attempt to be. And I'll tell you something, even though this is out of my wheelhouse, uh, I, the more I look at this, the more thankful I am for the Song of Solomon. Um, you, you guys can be glad that we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because I would have skipped Song of Solomon if I were a topical teacher. You would never see me in the Song of Solomon. I'd be in the book of Daniel or Philippians or, you know, a, a Revelation. There's a lot of books I, I just love to teach, but I, I've been like, oh boy, here comes Song of Solomon. Oh no. But it, you know what's interesting? The, the books that I sort of go, oh boy, here we go, Song of Solomon, um, Every time I, I end up teaching through these books, I end up being hugely blessed. And uh, hopefully you will be too, as we continue to study through this. Um, so just a confession time, out of my wheelhouse, talking about all this mushy stuff. But here we go. Let's dive in. What's going on? Well, in chapter 5, it's where we left off on Wednesday night. Whether it was a dream or literally happening, we're not really sure. But she, this 
bride of the, of, the, of the groom, she finds herself, she'd already washed her feet at nighttime, readied herself for bed, took off her fancy clothes, and, and went and laid down, when suddenly there was a knock at the door. And she thought, oh no, my beloved is here at the door. What do I do? And she paused and hesitated. She thought, man, I've, I've, already, taken, I've already washed my feet. I've already you know, um, prepped myself for bed. And he's knocking at the door. What do I do? And what do I do? And she waited and she waited. Finally, she gets up and goes to the door and opens. And she can smell his fragrance, that he was there. But he's gone. It took her too long. She lollygagged. There's a word we need to bring back. I like that word, lollygag. Um, well, that's what she did. She just kind of uh, lollygagged her way to the door, and she missed the opportunity to be with her husband. Um, and he was gone. So she runs out the door and runs in the streets. Where's my beloved? Where's my beloved? And some people treat her badly. They even uh, abuse her, like punch her and hit her. And, and eventually, um, she's saying, asking the women of Jerusalem, have you seen my, my beloved? Well, the women, they come back with sort of a snarky comment. What's their snarky comment? Well, that's where we pick up our text in verse 9 of chapter 5. They say, remember there's the, there's the choir of women of Jerusalem. They're the ones who are speaking here in verse 9. And they say, what is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? What's the big deal about your beloved? Why are you running around like a panicked person wondering, asking us where your lover is? Who cares? What's the big deal about him? He's like everybody else. Why are you acting like he's so special? And so they're going to get an answer from her. She's going to say, oh, you want to know about my beloved? Well, I'm going to tell you. And she's going to give us a bunch about her beloved. But before we get into this, remember, we're looking at this through that lens that Jesus Christ is our bridegroom. We're the bride of Christ. And so have you ever been asked that question about your bridegroom? What's the big deal about Jesus? What makes Jesus different than any other, you know, religious leader? Have you ever been asked that question? I have. Um, and, and I've got an answer. I'm so glad that we as Christians get to follow Jesus and not Buddha. Buddha? Well, if you know Buddha's story, uh, you picture the big fat guy. He wasn't always fat. He was, uh, he was actually skinny, but then he's... It's a long story, but the bottom line is Buddha ultimately left his family alone and went to go find himself and, and you know, and reach that ultimate uh, level of spirituality and, and really was left his kids alone, his, his wife alone. Buddha, uh, man, I, I don't want to really follow Buddha. And so many religious leaders, you know, they, they, they want you to reach the state of the snuffed out candle or whatever the thing is. What did, the, what did Buddha ever do for anyone? The answer is no, nothing. And we could talk about all the religious leaders. You know, um, uh, there's some really uh, obvious ones. You know, Muhammad. Muhammad was, started a religion called Islam. 600 years after Christianity was formed, Muhammad came and, uh, you know, he went to this... this uh, pantheon of gods where he selected the, this black stone, crescent moon kind of god. All that symbology of the crescent moon of Islam came from this uh, poly, uh, polytheistic sort of religion. But he, he chose one religion and, and said, this is the, the religion we're going to do. And, and, he, and there's argument whether he was trying to unify his army militarily by bringing sort of a monotheistic kind of religion to, to the front. 
Um, but what's interesting about Muhammad is he was not a guy I'd want to follow, frankly. I'm always amazed at um, how accepting people are of Islam. Do you know what I mean? Like the people in, this, in, in our country, in the United States, that maybe argue for women's rights the most, the loudest women's rights arguers, are the same people that are saying, oh, that peace-loving, wonderful religion, Islam. Does anybody see a conflict of interest there? The people that have treated women worse than anybody by far in all of the world's history are the Muslims. But you shouldn't say that. Let me just read from the, the writing. You know, I've read the Quran, I've read the Hadith, um, and um, I, I'm just going to say it. It reads like, like a kindergartner wrote it. I'm just saying that. It's really true. Uh, but let me quote some scripture, um, Quranic scripture and uh, writings from the Hadith. Um, about Muhammad. This is stuff you should know. Uh, people say, what's so big about Jesus? And what's the difference? It's all one religion. It's all one faith. No, it's not. I always joke around. No, Wolf Blitzer says you know, Christianity and Islam, Islam is the same. We're all just worshiping the same God. It's funny how people on Discover Channel, History Channel, and CNN, and even Fox News, all these you know, news agencies, they're the ones that are acting like they know what religion is about. But the, the people that are Muslims, they're not agreeing. And people that are Christians, we're not agreeing with those guys. Um, it, it, the ignorance is painful. What do you mean, Brett? Well, like, for example, um, Allah is not Jehovah. And I worship a very different God than the Muslim. And, and, and some people say, Brett, it's all the same. It's not. Just ask a Muslim, is Jesus God? And if you're a Muslim, you'll say, of course not. Um, they might give him the status of prophet, but he, he's a substandard prophet uh, un, under Muhammad. Well, is Jesus God's son? Well, Muslim, the Muslim does not believe Jesus is God's son. In fact, in the, the Dome of the Rock, the golden shrine there uh, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the, the, you know, it's controlled by the, um, the Muslims there in Jerusalem. Been there tons of times. But if you read the inscription that's written in Arabic around the top corner of the, of the Dome of the Rock shrine, it says, Allah does not beget, nor does he have a begotten. Um, the point, Jesus is not God's son. So do the Muslims and the Christians worship the same God? The answer is absolutely not. I believe that Jesus is God and, and I, I worship him as God. Um, and the Muslim thinks that's horrible. Um, and Jesus is just sort of a substandard prophet in there. Very different, very different. So don't listen to CNN and don't listen to the History Channel and Discover Channel. They don't know what they're talking about. But if you want to know about a religion, you go to its founder and you look at the founder. So when you want to know about Christianity, don't go ask somebody downtown Portland at Pioneer Square, what does Christianity mean to you? Because that, that answer is going to be a bunch of craziness. Uh, Christianity means being kind and hopefully you're good outweighing your bad and, 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 and caring about the environment. Like that's what you're going to hear somebody in downtown say that a Christian is. It's not what a Christian is. But I would also argue if you want to find out what a Muslim is, don't go to Pioneer Square and ask, what is an, a Muslim? Oh, they're a peace-loving people that pray toward Mecca on their rug and, and, um, and they say, well, I'll walk bar all the time <laughs> uh, and stuff. Well, like, that's not what a Muslim is. You've got to go to the founder. If you want to know what Christianity is, look at Jesus. Jesus is the founder of Christianity. If you want to know what a Muslim is, you go to Muhammad and you see what Muhammad was all about. And let me just show you a few things out of their scripture. These aren't my words. 
Um, Muhammad owned a black slave. Did you know that? That uh, shouldn't be news. It's, it's in volume 9, book 91, number 368, narrated by Umar. Um, and this is what the story says there in, in, um, in the Muslim writings. It says, I came and behold, Allah's apostle, Muslim, uh, that's Muhammad, was staying on a mashroba, which is an attic room. And a black slave of Allah's apostle was at the top of the stairs. And I said to him, uh, tell the prophet... Uh, that here is Umar bin al-Khattab. And he was asking for permission to enter in, asking the black slave that was watching over Muhammad. Um, And then he admitted me. So there's this whole narrative about Muhammad's black slave. Um, uh, Aren't you glad that Jesus was not a slave owner? Um, Not only that, but Muhammad had people killed all the time. Um, there's horrible stories. Um, let me just read one where uh, there was a guy who was afraid of Muhammad. Um, in b- volume 3, book 29, number 72, uh, narrated by Anas bin Malik. Um, this says, Allah's apostle entered Mecca, that's Muhammad, in the year of its conquest, wearing an Arabian helmet on his head, when the prophet took off his helmet and a person came and said, Ibn Qatal is hiding the, in the covering of the Kaaba." Um, taking refuge in the Kaaba. And the prophet said, kill him. <laughs> they were just like, kill him. We, we don't want chickens like that running around. Uh, kill him. Um, Muhammad told his soldiers that if you killed someone in the name of Allah, in, um, uh, that you would enter into paradise, uh, better paradise than you kill. It says in volume one, book two, number 35, Uh, The prophet said, the person who participates in holy battles in Allah's cause and nothing compels him to do so except his belief in Allah and his apostles will be recompensed by Allah either with a reward or booty if he survives or will be admitted into paradise if if he's killed in battle as a martyr. There's other writings that say that he'll have, you know, the 70, you know, virgins and stuff that will come. uh, But you know what's interesting about the virgin thing? Um, I'm not making this up. You guys are probably not going to believe what I'm about to say, but there's big debate among Islamic scholars right now because they've translated a word um, into virgins uh, for hundreds of years. Um, And so guys are like, you know, uh, well, Akbar, boom, and they blow themselves up. And then they think that that, that's going to bring them into paradise with their virgins. But the word for virgins in the uh, writings of uh, Muhammad uh, might be translated raisins. Uh, can you imagine that? You know, if you're there and you blow yourself up and then like, boom, it's like you're looking for the virgins and they're like you're holding a box of sun-made raisins. Like, uh, what a disappointment. Um, now I say that because, and I'm not just trying to be mean, but even if it's virgins, what a ridiculous thing. If you blow yourself up or kill yourself, you'll be in paradise with virgins if you did it for the sake of Islam. Um, uh, that's not Jesus. Jesus didn't kill anybody. Jesus didn't call us to battle. Even though the crusaders took it on their, them, themselves to do that, that was not what Jesus called us to do. Um, uh, and um, uh, how about, uh, and back to the women issue in Islam, listen to this. Muhammad said more women would be in hell than men and that women lacked intelligence. In volume one, book six, number 301, narrated by Abu Sa'id al-Qudri, um, he says this, once Allah's apostle went to the Musala to offer prayer uh, to Id al-Hadda or al-Fatir prayer, 
He passed by the women there and said, O women, give alms, as I have seen that the majority of the dwellers of hellfire were you women. They asked, Why is it so, O Allah's apostle? The women asked, Why why are there more women in hell? He replied, You curse frequently. You are ungrateful to your husbands. I have not seen anyone more deficient in intelligence and in religion than you. A cautious, sensible man could be led astray by some of you. The women asked, O Allah's apostle, what is deficient in our intelligence and religion? He said, It is not the evidence of, pardon me, is not the evidence of two women equal to the witness of one man? They replied in the affirmative. He said, This is the deficiency in her intelligence. Isn't it true that a woman can neither pray nor fast during her menses? The women replied in the affirmative, and he said, This is the deficiency in her religion. Um, this is this is what the the fundamental writings of the leader of Islam, uh, Muhammad, the esteemed prophet of Islam, uh, says about women. They're insufficient in their intelligence and in their religious ability. Um, and yet the world goes around, oh, that peace-loving religion called uh, Islam. I'm so glad that my beloved Jesus is so much better than Muhammad. I'm just going to say it. Muhammad was a total loser. He was. He murdered people. He, he, he did horrible things. Uh, and and uh, it's no wonder that we see the fruit of some of the most wor- the worst things happening in the world are done in the name of Muhammad and Allah. Well, Brett, that's not politically correct. Well, you know, if you're asking what's the difference between Jesus and Muhammad, I just told you, instead of Jesus killing everybody, he died for everybody. Instead of Jesus enslaving people, he became the servant of all, and he wrapped himself in a towel and washed the disciples' feet like a slave would do. Um, Jesus laid down his life. Muhammad took people's lives. Uh, It's so different. It's like not even close to comparison. And so um, we can talk about that. And by the way, now let me, this this is going to get into some really nuances. Since we're in controversial territory, (laughs) maybe I'm enjoying this teaching a little more than I should. Uh, I thought it was all about romance. um, But uh, no, one one of the things I would caution you as believers is um, people that claim to be Jesus or people that are worshiping Jesus, but it's not really Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, when he was saying, in the last days, many will come in my name um, to deceive many. What does that mean? Does Muhammad have Jesus' name? No, there's there's maybe even some more sinister um, so-called beloveds out there or people that are posers as Jesus. What do you mean, Brett? Well, this is where it gets painful, but I got to say it as a pastor who cares about a congregation, I've got to say it. There are people that worship a very different Jesus than we worship, Um, but it looks like Jesus. It even kind of sounds like Jesus. You see, I'm not as worried about you guys all becoming Muslims, but am I concerned about you becoming Jehovah's Witness or Mormons? Because they all talk about Jesus in similar terms as you and I talk about Jesus. And our Mormon friends, some of the nicest people you'll ever meet, they, they say, we worship Jesus too. You say, well, we believe in Jesus. Yep, we do too. We believe he died on the cross. So do we. But are they worshiping the same Jesus? And, and why are, maybe you've wondered, why are most Christians so opposed to the idea of Mormons just bring them in, man. They're just like us. And some people do, by the way. Um, certain ministries will treat Mormons. Just, they're just part of our team. But they're not on the same team because they worship a different Jesus. 
Their Jesus is not God. Their Jesus is, is not uh, who we believe he is. Their Jesus is like the brother of Satan. That's not what we believe. We believe that Jesus is God. And we also don't believe that you can save yourself by your good works. We believe you're only saved through Jesus who died on the cross. There's no other way to heaven but by Jesus Christ. And your works do not get you to heaven. And, and see, the Mormon construct is, you know, you're a Mormon. And if you're a good Mormon, you can become, uh, you know, a, a next level, uh, you know, Mormon. You go from the ter- terrestrial level to the celestial level. And ultimately, you become like God. You become a God at the celestial level of heaven. And, that, and there's all kinds of things about the Mormon doctrine that is just you know, on the surface, it looks just like Christianity. But if you look at their doctrines and covenants, which I've read, very different, very, very different Jesus that the Mormons believe in. Again, I love Mormon people. Um, I have family and friends that are Mormons. But I will also tell them, man, you need to follow the, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of Joseph Smith, who had 27 wives and went to jail and was kind of a weirdo. Uh, same with, um, you know, I mean, if you read about the wilderness slayings and, and um, Brigham Young and his 50-plus wives and the polygamy and the weirdness of the Mormon uh, origins of their faith, it's embarrassing. 3,000 changes uh, since Mormonism began just, just a few hundred years ago. Like it's, it, like, it's not even that long ago where Mormonism started, and yet they've had to change their doctrine 3,000 times. How many times have we had to change the Bible? Zip, zilch. We still believe the same Bible that we've had for millennia. It's the Mormons that have changed the doctrine and changed. The, and how did it happen? You know, well, Joseph Smith saw this dream with, or, you know, had vision with the goggles of the glasses, the spectacles, and saw the plates and, and got this, you know, thing from Mor- Moroni, uh, you know, this angel from heaven. Um, isn't it interesting that Galatians says, Man, Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven comes and gives to you another gospel than that which we have preached, let that angel be accursed. That's what the Bible says. So it's interesting. Now, let's even go more uh, deep into it since I'm already there. Um, Be careful when people say, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus. We're all about Jesus. We love Jesus just as much as you do. But just make sure that they're believing in the same Jesus of the Bible. One thing that concerns me is there's Christian churches all around America that are just totally swept into this worship movement um, that is Jesus culture or Bethel. And Bethel, they teach that Jesus, there, there's a bunch of things about Jesus that Bethel does that's, that's really off the rails. They believe that Jesus laid aside his deity and became just a man. Like he lived, literally left his deity and became just a man. That's starting to, if you, if you know your heresies of the early church, that was one of them, that he left his deity and that he became just a man. Um, uh, and because Jesus did all those miracles and the things as just a man, then you should be able to do all those miracles the same way. And maybe you saw the international news of that poor little girl that died in their uh, ministry down there in Reading, and they spent, you know, seven days trying to raise her from the dead. But, you know, every Sunday, churches locally are singing Bethel songs because their Bethel music is, is really talented, good music, um, well done. Some of the songs are amazing. And, uh, but there's a reason why Athey Creek, we don't do Bethel songs. I'll tell you why. Because if people were to say, well, where'd you get that song? That's a nice song. Um, I'd have to say, well, we got it from basically a, a church that believes in a different Jesus than we believe. Their doctrine is whacked. 
Right, you mean the golden glitter that falls from their ceiling? That's not what I'm complaining about. That's weird, but that's not my argument. You mean that when they lay on graves and try to soak up the, the bones, uh, you know, uh, anointing from C.S. Lewis and from Amy Simple McPherson and Catherine Coleman, they're trying to grave soak? That's weird. Kind of satanic, but nope, that's not my complaint. Then what is your complaint? It's their doctrine about Jesus. That's what gets them off the rails. You see, the gold dust and the, all that other stuff, those aren't essential doctrines. They're weird. But I have Christian brothers and sisters who do weird stuff, and I'm just, I still embrace them. But it's, it's Bethel that's taken the doctrine of Jesus, and they've, they've, they diminish Jesus, by the way, in their doctrine, and they push up us, that we can be like Jesus. But it's not like what you and I would say is, yeah, we should all be like Jesus, but can we ever be Jesus? Uh, of course not. Um, that's, Jesus is a whole nother level because he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man, and that's who Jesus really is. And, and you say, well, Brett, I'm offended. I like Bethel music. I'm not talking about liking music. I'm talking about doctrine. And, and uh, we have just chosen, our leadership team here has said, you know, we don't want to point people in the direction of Bethel by singing the songs that are coming out of Jesus culture or Bethel. And everybody's on the bandwagon, and most of you probably think I'm nuts. But that's okay. I probably am. Uh, but, but see, what the, the reason I get defensive about that is because he's my bridegroom. I'm the bride. I'm the guy that, that has, has said, you know what, Jesus, he's the best. What's so good about your Jesus? Well, the Jesus I believe in is from the Bible. Not made up, not weird doctrine, not Muhammad, not Krishna, Buddha, Oprah. My Jesus is different. I worship a very different Jesus, and, and, um, and I'm defensive about who Jesus is. And that's, by the way, what we as pastors are called to do. Um, the pastors that don't watch and warn the flock from false teaching, um, man, that, that's not what, I mean, people are neglecting their duty, I think, pastors are, to share with us with the con- congregations. Well, all that to say, um, this woman gives this description of her bridegroom. And, and I want to share with you why we should love Jesus. Uh, it's the same reasons. As we look at this as an allegory, let's read. It says here in verse 10, this is where she starts to defend her bridegroom. She says in verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are a bed of spices as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with beryl, and his belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. What's so big about your beloved? Oh, you want to know? And she goes off into this beautiful, poetic description of her shepherd king. But in the Bible, these elements and these uh, 
objects that she's talking about all have pictures and illustrations. Don't forget, when you read the Bible, there's so many types. That's the word type. In that, remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says, don't be ignorant, that like the rock that followed the children of Israel and that was smitten and water gushed out. He, remember what he said? That rock was what? Jesus. Everything's a picture of Jesus. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, it says in the book of Hebrews. Jesus. The whole book is about Jesus. So when we look at this description of her beloved, we can look at this and see, wow, this description is really like a description of Jesus. How so? Well, I'm going to kind of go through this quickly because I've spent too much time talking about other things. So we got to go through just 12 points. Are you ready? <laughs> Only 12. Um, uh, let's see if we can work through these 12 things that she mentions quickly. Number one, she talks about purity. What's that? Well, she starts in verse uh, 10. Uh, My beloved is white. Um, this is not a racial comment. Um, but it, it's more about, uh, you know, his purity, that he is, he's white and clean. Um, also, by the way, uh, the, the idea of, you know, pure gold is, and we'll talk about what the meaning of gold is, but the idea of pure gold is, uh, also speaks of purity. And that's, that's who our Jesus is. Um, you know, our sins are scarlet, but they'll be made white as snow. But how is that? Because Jesus, he's the one who was perfect, without spot or without blemish, perfectly pure. Remember what Pontius Pilate said? He said, I can find no fault in this man when he was under scrutiny. Um, You could say that, you you know, can you say that about anybody? I can find no fault in this person? Well, as it turns out, Jesus really had no faults. Peter, uh, of course, testified in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. he, um, He says this, Uh, For even here unto we were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Jesus did no sin, and there was not guile found in his mouth. That's 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. Um, Not only that, Paul stated about Jesus in um, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For Jesus... Had been made, uh, he made for God, I should say, uh, let me read this back up. We're ambassadors for Christ as God did to beseech you by us. We pray for you in Christ's stead because you re- uh, be reconciled to God, for he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus knew no sin. He was sinless. Um, perfect. Uh, that's the purity of our beloved Jesus. He didn't sin. Muhammad sinned a lot. Krishna sinned, Buddha sinned, everybody sinned, but Jesus was the righteous lamb of God that would be slain for the sins of the world. The only way we could be made righteous or forgiven is if a perfect spotless lamb was sacrificed for us. I love Jesus for his purity. That's number one, purity. Number two, vitality. We see that in the second part of this in verse 10. My beloved is white and ruddy. Does anybody remember the last time that word was used in the Bible? Ruddy? Talking about David. Do you ever wonder what that meant? He was a ruddy youth. It sounds, you know, what is the word automatopoeia? It sounds like a bad thing. Oh, that's a ruddy little kid. Are we insulting him? No. The word ruddy, uh, it, it means, it can mean a reddish color, kind of red. Does that mean David had red hair? Maybe. 
But most scholars believe that um, it, it speaks of vitality in the sense of rosy cheeks, you know, kind of a healthy red face, you know, um, uh, life and, and nourishment and stuff like that. Ruddy means a healthy reddish color. Um, and both, um, um, both uh, Song of Solomon and also it's used in Lamentations 4-7 talking about a person's complexion. And that's what they believe, uh, scholars believe is being talked about here, that he's got a healthy vitality. Um, you know, I love that about Jesus because I think a lot of people sort of try to make Jesus look unhealthy. Have you noticed the Jesus of the, the, most of the movies? He looks like he's a vegan <laughs> who's been smoking weed and, um, man, just needs a hamburger. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um, you know, and, he, and when he looks at you, have you ever noticed that like when the Jesus movie, Jesus, like you'll be standing over there like this and he'll, hey, Jesus, Jesus, and he'll go. It's like, like ah! I, I don't believe that's who Jesus was. I believe Jesus had a vitality and a health to him. Um, they accused him falsely of being a glutton and a wine bibber. You don't accuse somebody of being a glutton um, that's looking like that dude that's a vegan. Um, Jesus also had vitality. You know what's great? I love, and I always like to bring this up. The kids were drawn to Jesus. Children ran up to Jesus and wanted to jump on his lap. Um, you don't have the smoking weed dude guy in the movie. Kids run from that guy. They're freaked out by that guy. Um, Jesus, kids, it was the disciples that said, get these kids out of here. They probably look like that guy. But Jesus, he had the, the vitality and the health. And, and um, I also think he wasn't wimpy or the skinny little twig. Um, and I've got evidence. Remember when Jesus went to the Temple Mount and he uh, turned the, the tables over, made a scourge of small cords, whoosh, and started whipping and, and flipping the tables. And he said, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, if he was this weed smoking dude, somebody would have beat him up for doing that. Hey, you just turned my money and get out of here, you little pencil neck. But that's not what they did. Nobody said a word. I wonder if when Jesus turned the tables, if they were like, don't mess with that dude. Vitality and authority. That's the, the, the Jesus we believe in. And that's this word ruddy, by the way. So that's the, that's the second thing. We got purity, number one, vitality, number two, number three, superiority. What's so big about your beloved, they asked her, and she said, he's the chiefest among 10,000. Man, um, in a way, it's like saying he's one in a million. Uh, he, there's nobody like my beloved. And, and others have tried to, you know, um, be in place of Jesus, but nobody holds a candle to Jesus, not Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, any of those people. Um, and so that's an important thing, superiority of Christ. Nobody's like him. Um, Brett, are you saying that Jesus is the only way? Yes, good. That's what you need to get to. You need to get to the place where you understand they're all a bunch of fakes. Jesus is the only way. Jesus said this of himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So either Jesus was wrong, claiming to be the only way to heaven, and you have to say, well, Jesus was wrong, or he was correct, and he is the only way. And, and the reason I say that is because there's so many people that have tried to be so open-minded, their brains are falling out. They're so open-minded. Oh, we just believe in many paths. There's many paths to heaven, to salvation, to spiritual enlightenment. 
Um, the problem with that is there's nothing in the cosmos that is, is like that. There's nothing that you can say, man, if you want to get to point A, from point A to point B, take whatever path you want. There's nothing in the universe modeled by that. If you want to get to the moon, you got to take a specific path, and you better be careful, you might miss it if you're not on a very narrow trajectory. Um, if you want to get to my house, there's a certain road you're just going to have to go on. You can't say, well, I, I like to think that, Brad, I can get to your house by going to San Diego. Um, you can like to think that, but you'll never make my house because it's not in San Diego, and it's not on the way to San Diego. People that say there are many paths to enlightenment and spiritual, then that's, that, there's not. Jesus said there's only one path. Narrow is the path. Broad is the path that leads to what? Destruction. So people that are saying, Brett, you're so narrow-minded. I can't believe you're talking about Mormons and even Bethel. I'm offended. Um, I'm just saying, Jesus is narrow. And um, people that try to broaden that, they get, get into real trouble. Um, Jesus is superior. He's the only way. There's no other way. It's all about Jesus. Superiority. Number, number four, divinity. Divinity. It says there in verse 11, his head is uh, as the most fine gold. Man, in the Bible, pure gold, fine gold speaks of divinity. Um, remember the Ark of the Covenant was made out of wood, the box part, covered in gold. Put in that box were the Ten Commandments, the manna, and the budding rod of Aaron, which were three reminders of the children of Israel's failure. Murmuring about the manna, rebelling the budding rod of Moses, and the Ten Commandments constantly breaking them. Moses broke them all at once, if you recall. But kind of a different way of breaking the Ten Commandments. But be that as it may, those three things reminded the Jews of their failure. But what was it that was the top of the Ark of the Covenant? It wasn't a box covered in gold. That was the box part. It was the lid called the mercy seat, and it was made of pure gold, solid gold. Can you imagine how heavy that would be? Can you imagine um, how much money that would cost? But they made it out of pure gold, and the Lord said, when you put that mercy seat on the ark, that's where I will meet with you. Um, His divinity, uh, purity of, of gold. Well, uh, the divinity, Jesus being the head of gold. By the way, the, um, Jesus was divinity. He claimed to be God. When, when the Jews were there and Jesus said, I and my Father are one, John ten thirty. The Jews weren't thinking, oh, he's tight with God or he's united with God. See, that's what the Mormons would say. Jesus is not God. He's just, he was just saying he was united with God or linked to God. But if that's all he meant, then the Jews would have said, cool, awesome. We all would want to be that, linked to God. But do you remember what the Jews did when Jesus said, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What did they begin to do? They picked up stones and were going to stone him to death. For said, He makes himself to be equal with God, which he was. But they didn't understand it. He's divinity. Uh, man, we could go on about that one. Colossians chapter 2. Uh, verses 8 and 9. I'll just quickly read that. It says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, who? Jesus Christ. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's just a King James way of saying inside of Jesus dwells the whole thing of the Godhead. Jesus is God. He's the perfect embodiment, fullness of God. And that's where I take issue with Bethel saying, no, 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 he laid aside that God part and was just a man. 
Ask anybody who's into doctrine, and they'll tell you that's a wrong teaching. So divinity, number five. Is that what we're on? Another fancy word, but to keep our alliteration going, immutability. What's immutability? Never changing. It it says here in verse 11, it says his locks, his hair, is uh, bushy or curled is a better translation there. He's got curly hair, black as a raven. Um, uh, Hair, uh, by the way, speaks of, uh, we talked about this, uh, I think it was Wednesday night or a couple Wednesday nights ago. But hair speaks of consecration. Remember the Nazarite vow where they didn't cut their hair and they left it alone? Um, but it also speaks of submission. Hair, First uh, Corinthians 11, uh, the hair, long hair uh, being a, a sign of submission. Um, but Jesus was submitted to the Father, but he was also set aside for uh, the, uh, the work of saving humanity. And so this immutability that he never changes, hair that's not gray, uh, it's not balding. He's got the long black locks of curly hair. That's what some scholars would ascribe to this idea of his locks of hair. Um, that's immutability, but also his amiability. Um, he's an amiable person. It says there in verse 12, his eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. Perfectly proportioned. His whites of his eyes are pure white. His eyes are uh, like a dove. Um, have you ever looked at bird's eyes? They're kind of interesting. Um, uh, have you ever seen an eagle's eyes up close or even a hawk? Man, their eyes are intimidating. I think that's one of the reasons why we chose the bald eagle as our bird for the United States because, man, it's pretty fierce looking. When you look at a bald eagle eye to eye, you're like, woo, don't mess with that. Um, my daughter, Brooke, was out um, by the Willamette River just watching nature and stuff, and she... Um, she uh, was watching this bald eagle soar down the, the, the river. And then, um, and then suddenly the bald eagle just dove and went right down into the water and pulled up a big fish out of the river and kind of foof, foof, started flying off with this big fish. The bald eagle got up to a really high uh, level and, and Brooke thought, well, there he goes with his lunch, you know. But these two ravens came and started fighting him in the air for the fish. Two ravens, one bald eagle. True story. This is what she saw. The bald eagle dropped the fish. There's the fish. And the bald eagle whacks the two ravens. The two ravens go flying away, freaked out. The bald eagle swoops down, and before the fish hits the water, grabbed it and flew off away with his fish. Like, that's mutual of Omaha's wild, wild kingdom right there, man. Uh, that's great stuff. Uh, uh, the bald eagle is a fierce animal. I love that the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit is typified by the dove. The dove is not a fierce animal, but it's, an, uh, it's a bird that's synonymous with what? Peace. Peace. Um, that's the thing about the eyes here. His eyes are like the eyes of a dove by the rivers of water, washed with milk. Purity, but, but also peace. His eyes are peaceful. I love that. Um, he's amiable, if you would. Eyes of peace. peace. Faithfulness, if you would. Number uh, seven. Six? Seven. Thank you. Somebody's, you guys are freaking me out. Somebody said six. So seven. Uh, his fragrancy. Um, have you ever heard of the term sweet cheeks? You guys, you guys know what that, if you're a mom, you know what that is. When the little baby has the little cheeks and they're just so squishy and there's just a smell of baby cheeks. that's kind of sweet. Uh, it's kind of what's being said here. His cheeks, verse 13, are as a bed of spices 
as sweet flowers, his lips like the lilies. Um, you got to love this, that there's a fragrancy of spices and sweet, his lips like sweet myrrh. Um, Jesus has a beautiful fragrance about him. He was given gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Divinity, uh, frankincense speaks of his life, uh, but it, myrrh speaks of his death. And man, there's so many images we could talk about if we had the time. And we will go through this more as we continue through the Bible. But um, the fragrance there in John chapter 12, when Jesus had the fragrance put upon his feet and the whole house was filled with the fragrance, our Jesus has a beautiful fragrance about him. Um, I love that, both practically, because uh, I have a sensitive nose and I don't like bad smells very much, uh, but uh, I'm thankful that spiritually there's a, there's a sweet fragrance as well. A lot of stuff just stinks. Things that we do, it stinks. Um, things that uh, people say, they stink. But Jesus, there was just a sweetness and a fragrance about him. Uh, number eight, quickly, running out of time, authority. His hands have, uh, it says there, are, are as gold rings set with barrel. Um, rings in the Bible speak of um, authority. Um, and um, um, Mark chapter 1, verse 22, remember the people said, he speaks as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. He has authority, our beloved Jesus. Um, number uh, nine, charity. His belly, uh, boy, I wish I had more time for this one. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. Now, the word belly there is nice and everything, um, but it, it, the r- original translation gets kind of weird. Do you remember on Wednesday night, uh, what, what did the woman say? It says, um, I'll, I'll read it to you that missed this on Wednesday night. Um, in chapter 5, verse um, 4, she said, My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. Uh, Brett? She, she did what? When she knew that he was there? Um, th- this is troublesome for us in our day. But um, when the Bible talks about your bowels in the sense of emotion and feeling, it, it really is not that foreign. We have cleaned it up a little bit. And we say, oh, I'm in my heart, my heart. They just move it a little cl- lower, say my stomach, my stomach. Because you don't have your but- butterflies in your stomach or your, your, you have a sinking feeling in your stomach. We say, oh, my heart just sank. We just are cleaning it up because we don't like talking about our bowels. Um, When she said her bowels were moved for him, her heart sank for him. That's what she's really saying. In the same way, here in this description of our beloved, when it says his belly, it's it's the part of him that feels um, that's being referred to here, his uh, senses toward you uh, as his beloved. Um, It's a a sense of love. Uh, uh, So finely polished ivory is in the Bible speaking of love, by the way. Ivory, white ivory speaks of love. And sapphire speaks of value. An inestimable, uh, is that the right way of saying it? Beyond uh, uh, ability to value um, worth. That's the idea of the, of the rubies and sapphires. So he's, it fits what the Bible says about our Lord's attitude toward you. His thoughts toward you are what? Precious thoughts. How many thoughts does he have towards you that are precious? Anybody? Right. More than the sand on the seashore. Um, that's his, his, his sense of feeling towards you. And that's what she's saying here about his love, his charity. So number one, purity. Number two, vitality. Three, superiority. 
divinity, immutability, amiability, fragrancy, authority, charity. Number 10. Only three more to go. Uh, Stability. His legs are pillars of marble set on sockets of fine gold. Uh, Man, quickly uh, uh, powerful, everlasting, um, never changing. That's stability. Number, Number 11, his beauty. It says, verse 15, last part there, it says, His beauty, um, his countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Some of you are like, a Lebanon? Uh, I smell gunpowder. I see bombed buildings. I see Muslims running around, whoa, um, and stuff. Well, yeah, that's happening now. Did you know that um, before Islam, and I'm not just trying to bash Islam today. I'm just telling you it's a false religion. But it's also super destructive because did you know Lebanon was called the Paris of the Beirut? was called the Paris of the Middle East not that long ago. Lebanon used to be one of the most beautiful places in the, that whole region of the world. Now, if you see pictures of Lebanon and Beirut, it's just a total mess. And it's because uh, Iranian-backed Hezbollah has been up there uh, at the border of Israel trying to cause all kinds of trouble, and they have just destroyed that region. And it's, it's horrifyingly sad. Um, but when you read about Lebanon in the Bible, what you have to do is understand it was the most beautiful place in the whole region, Lebanon. So it says that he is like the beauty, the countenance of Lebanon. Um, and then lastly, delivery, um, how he speaks. It says in verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. He is altogether lovely. Did Jesus have a sweet mouth? The people marveled at his, what kind of words? Gracious words. It says the common people heard Jesus gladly. His words were sweet um, and kind. While the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to hear Jesus condemn the woman uh, that was caught in adultery, he gave her words of not condemnation, but forgiveness and grace. And on and on, Jesus' words were delivered in the most sweet way. And so she concludes her whole narrative of her beloved um, that he is altogether lovely. That's our Jesus. Jesus is altogether lovely. He lacks for nothing. He's all of these things that we've talked about. Purity, vitality, superiority, divinity, immutability, amiability, fragrancy, authority, charity, stability, beauty, and his delivery is sweet. All of these things are about our Jesus. Man, I hope that if you are a Christian and you've already tasted and seen that our beloved Jesus is like no other, that this only reinforces that. If you're not yet one who's accepted Christ's loving invitation to be part of his um, family, then why would you not? Why would you follow other religions that they never did anything for you? All the other religions of the world fall short because they did nothing for you. It's all about what you have to do for it. But Christ did the work for you on the cross, dying for your sins, and you can be saved. That's what the Lord does. So may the Lord give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. And so today, Lord, as we look at this narrative of the bridegroom, we see in you, Lord, perfect perfect uh, on every level, perfection beyond description. We're so thankful, Lord, to be able to follow our leader, our, our Savior, Jesus, Lord, who perfectly demonstrated love. Um, I pray that 
that more and more people would see the emptiness of the false religious systems that men come up with, but that they would turn to your word and follow the scriptures. Um, Lord, I pray that we'd walk away from this service just being in love with you, for you are altogether lovely. So bless these, your people, as we go our way now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We encourage you to take advantage of our media ministry by visiting us at athecreek.com anytime. There we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download. 